the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Todd Nettleton. He is with the Voice of the Martyrs. We'll talk about their movie, Sabina, Tortured for Christ, The Nazi Years. I finally got to see the whole movie I finished last night and... Boy, what a movie it is. It's going to be in theaters Monday through Wednesday of next week, and that's it. You can go to sabinamovie.com for uh, ticket purchases and locations, times, and all of those details. But Ted Nettleton will join us, uh, join me, I should say, at 5 o'clock to talk about the movie. And Kyle Mann will be my guest following that conversation. He's the co-author of The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. Um, satirical group they do a great job we'll talk with him about their latest publication well taking a look at some of the day's news senator manchin called tuesday's election results a wake-up call and considers its impact on the president's agenda well the senator spoke with fox news brett bear on wednesday about the implications of the virginia gubernatorial election as well as the tight new jersey race that the associated press called for governor phil murphy well youngkin a republican defeated terry mcauliffe a democrat in a race widely seen as a referendum on the president in new jersey murphy won by a narrow margin against republican jack uh, Sierra Torelli. Uh, I hope it's a wake up call for all of us, Manchin said of the election. I'm concerned. I've been talking about our debt. I've been talking about inflation. It's been I've been talking about the economic fallout we may have from the spending bills. Well, Democrats uh, should pay more heed to the immediate needs of the American people, such as rising gas prices and infrastructure, according to Manchin. Well, he pushed back against Cori Bush, uh, her anti-black accusations, saying, well, she doesn't really know me. Virginia Lieutenant uh, Governor-elect Winsome uh, Sears slammed Jamel Hill after the sports writer blamed white supremacy for her win. She happens to be black. Well, not surprisingly, the liberal media ignored Winsome Sears altogether and her historic Virginia win. Well, the campaign, um, the Sia Torelli campaign, reacted to the AP's decision to call the race for his opponent, saying it was irresponsible to call the vote this early for Murphy. That was yesterday. Uh, his campaign criticized the Associated Press for calling the gubernatorial race, arguing that it was, in fact, irresponsible to make that call. With the candidates separated by a fraction of a percent out of 2.4 million ballots cast, it's irresponsible for the media to make this call when the New Jersey Secretary of State doesn't even know how many ballots are left to be counted. That's a quote from Stammy Williams, the campaign communications director for Sia Torelli. The AP called the race for incumbent Democrat Governor Phil Murphy Wednesday evening after a surprising tight race and saw the candidates linger within a few thousand votes of each other well into Wednesday. And other developments from George Soros to unions, the left poured major money into the effort to defeat Austin's police staffing proposition. And the president admits McAuliffe um, maybe could have won if he had gotten his agenda passed, referring to his own agenda. 
A New Jersey truck driver, Ed Durer, is on the verge of upsetting the state Senate president and longtime Democrat leader. I think at this point that has been decided. The president of the New Jersey Senate was in danger of a stunning upset loss to his Republican truck driver challenger. Senator Sweeney, a longtime Garden State Democrat leader, was trailing the Republican challenger, Edward Durer, by thousands of votes. Durer spent one hundred and fifty three dollars on his general election campaign, according to the campaign finance filings. Yeah, I didn't leave out the zeros. It was one hundred and fifty three dollars. Door is a truck driver by trade is on the verge of a stunning upset over Sweeney, who is the longest serving legislative leader in New Jersey history. Should Door win, and again, I believe that has been decided, the upset would upend Garden State Democratic Party leadership. I've lived here all my life. I've been a commercial truck driver for the last 25 years. I consider myself to be blue collar, Durr stated on his campaign website. In other developments, the New Jersey uh, truck driver vows to be a Republican voice in a state Senate after unseating the longtime Democrat. Tucker Carlson said Democrats' abysmal election results show it's time to rethink politics. Well, every party who predominates always thinks it's a major development and things are going to change dramatically, but they rarely do, at least not dramatically. A Boston high school canceled classes after the principal was knocked unconscious during an alleged assault by a female student. Now, my understanding is he was beat rather savagely. John Deere says the worker contract is the best and final offer they're going to provide as the strike continues. And Kellogg's U.S. cereal plant workers rejected a revised offer. Speaker Pelosi said paid leave has been added back into the Biden social spending bill. And Google plans to pursue a Pentagon cloud computing contract. Well, James Carville blames stupid wokeness, and that's a quote, for election losses. Uh, He may be a feisty liberal, but he is often the first to admit his side has big issues. He told Judy Woodruff of NewsHour what went wrong was this stupid wokeness. Don't just look at Virginia and New Jersey. Look at Long Island. Look at Buffalo. Look at Minneapolis. Even look at Seattle, Washington. I mean, this defund the police lunacy, uh, this uh, takes uh, this take Abraham Lincoln's name off schools. People see that, end quote. Dr. Albert Moeller weighed in. He said in the state of Virginia, the big cultural issue was education and parental rights in education. That was an issue that wasn't expected to be uniquely Virginian in this off year election. But it turned out to be it turned out to be because issues of critical race theory and intersectionality and especially LGBTQ issues, even down to transgender students and bathrooms. It turned out that parents really care about those issues. It turns out that parents really care about what is being taught to their children and parents, even in a state like Virginia, which has declared itself red, then purple, now blue. It turns out that even those parents are offended when their former governor running to be governor again says that parents basically should have no influence in the public schools, no influence in the curriculum, no influence in the rules, no influence in the policies. Abigail Schreier says America's parents should be Times Person of the Year. Hugh Hewitt says Tuesday night's big election wins for Republicans sends a message to President Joe Biden and congressional Democrats. Stop. Well, that's not always uh, the straightforward case. In other news, New York Times reports that ISIS is a growing threat as they terrorize Afghanistan. In the two months since the Taliban took control of the, the country, the Islamic State affiliate in Afghanistan, known as Islamic State uh, Khorasan or ISIS-K, has, steep, has uh, rather stepped up attacks across the country, straining the new and untested government and raising alarm bells in the West about the potential resurgence of a group that could eventually pose an international threat.
A complete unknown is the forerunner against the New Jersey State Senate president. New Jersey's longest running state Senate president seems to be losing his seat to a truck driver. And everyone is stunned. The Daily Caller writes, Durr has been critical of Democrat New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly Murphy's decision to force nursing homes to accept COVID-19 patients, a decision which Durr uh, says resulted in the deaths of 8,000 seniors in the state. He also says his opponent, Sweeney, spent 20 years doing little more than increasing taxes and the cost of living for New Jersey residents. Virginia Lieutenant Governor-elect Winsome Sears hits back at Janelle, uh, Jamel Hill, who credited white supremacy for her win. From that story, it's not the messaging, folks, Hill tweeted in response to a resounding Republican victory in Virginia, a Hispanic, an African-American, and a Caucasian that elected Republican Glenn Youngkin as governor and Sears as lieutenant governor. This country simply loves white supremacy. Now, making that case is a bit more challenging than just making an offhand comment. Winsome Sears, um, complete with a picture of her with a uh, what appears to be an AR-15, says we beg to differ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. Just a reminder, in the second hour, we're going to talk about Sabina the movie, as well as the uh, Babylon Bee's Guide to Wokeness. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, an MSNBC host denied critical race theory is really uh, is real during the election coverage. It's apparently in a figment of the imagination of those who produce it, who teach it, who promote it and those who oppose it. Well, MSNBC host Nicole Wallace declared on Tuesday that critical race theory isn't real while roasting Virginia Republican gubernatorial candidate Glenn Youngkin during the liberal networks election night coverage. Uh, From Seth Mandel, I had to watch the video to make sure she actually said this. And, well, she actually said this. National Review reports Youngkin was uh, endorsed by Trump, but he declined to campaign with the former president. Moreover, he has described the events of the January 6th Capitol riot as sickening and wrong. Nevertheless, Wallace insisted that uh, Youngkin worshipped at the altar of Donald Trump on Fox News and accused Youngkin of having flown insurrection flags at his rally. A flag carried during the riot was used to ple- uh, for the Pledge of Allegiance at a rally attended by the president and Steve Bannon's organization by a conservative radio host, not the Youngkin campaign. Youngkin didn't attend and released a statement calling the act weird and wrong. Christopher Rufo weighs in. Under the Northern Administration, Superintendent of Public Instruction James Lane sent a memo to Virginia public schools endorsing foundations of critical race theory in education, calling it an important analytic tool that can further spur developments in education. Apparently referring to a um, theory and practice that don't exist. Newsbusters reports that VA election lies. The media are lying about critical race theory. CRT is taught in Virginia schools and the back and forth continue. You know, it kind of makes you glad you're an Oregonian. At least you're not part of that debate. Well, following the election loss in Minneapolis, Uh, Some have threatened to burn more police precincts. Unsurprisingly, the defund the police crowd in Minneapolis, they didn't take their defeat at the ballot uh, too well after campaigning to entirely abolish the police department in Minnesota's largest city with rising crime that caused citywide warnings of carjackings to be issued last month. From the uh, blue-checked Ashley Fairbanks, I'm just sick. I never would have uh, guessed standing outside the burning precinct that all this would end in people giving the mayor and MPD their vote of confidence. Republicans um, 
flipped a solid Democrat seat in Texas State House. A Republican managed to flip a Democrat-held Texas State House seat Tuesday in a district that President Joe Biden won in November by 14 points. John Luan uh, defeated Democrat Frank Ramirez by 51 percent to 49 percent on Tuesday to take the Texas House District 118. And from the Associated Republicans of Texas, this election sets a tone for Republicans as we continue to reach out to Hispanic voters and South Texas communities to pick up more seats in 22. Seattle voted in a police-loving Republican as their uh, new attorney general, Republican Ann Davison, uh, held a strong 58 percent to 41 percent lead in the race for Seattle city attorney with returns Tuesday showing voters rejecting the brash language of her police abolitionist opponent, Nicole Kennedy, Thomas Kennedy, in favor of Davison's law and order stance. At one end stood Thomas Kennedy, a former public defender who wants to ultimately abolish misdemeanor prosecutions. During the unrest that swept the city in the summer of 2020, she tweeted about her rabid hatred of the police and and that's a quote, by the way, and pronounced property destruction during times of protest, a moral imperative. No surprise why voters probably didn't think she should continue from hot air. They report as extreme as she was. Thomas Kennedy had a real shot at winning the race in part because local Democrats endorsed her and in part because her opponent Ann Davison was a Republican from King five. Davison believed the city attorney's office is not for setting policy or a place for radical agenda. It is a place to provide impartial advice to those elected to create policy and to maintain laws. So there is public safety. Well, CNN calls the Atlanta Braves an embarrassment over political incorrectness. The story called the world champion Braves a nightmare for anybody into uh, social justice. Allie Beth Stuckey uh, points out, and the Braves won the World Series in Texas after the MLB punished Georgia for its voting laws. It's a great night for anti-wokeism. By the way, we'll be talking with Kyle Mann, who's the co-author of the Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness uh, in the five o'clock hour. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad were silent on Winsome Sears' historic victory. Again, you have to have certain views. Uh, It doesn't matter if you happen to be a woman of color. Um, You have to fit the narrative. President Biden sidestepped questions on why Democrats lost. And she doesn't know me. Manchin pushes back against Cori Bush's anti-black accusations against him. The day after getting beat, Democrats try again on voting rights. The federal election takeover. The Senate said no. The Biden administration is pushing wholesale transformation of economies with price tag of up to one hundred and fifty trillion dollars. And a Russia analyst who aided the bogus Trump dossier has been arrested. President Biden claims payments to migrants separated under the previous administration is not going to happen. However, the ACLU rather boldly said, yeah, it uh, probably is. And the uh, White House spokesperson in the absence of the uh, the regular Jen Psaki said, well, the president um, misspoke. The Pentagon predicts a five-fold increase in China's nuclear weapons over the next 10 years. And OSHA formally mandates vaccines or tests for big companies by January 4th. Um, Heard in the distance, see you in court. In a mind-boggling statement, a San Francisco health officer says children 5 to 11 will be required to show proof of vaccination. But first, of course, it has to be explained to them what that means. Uh Oh, Anthony Fauci staffers flagged potential gain of function research at the Wuhan lab in 2016, despite the fact that the doctor has denied the U.S. funding. Unemployment claims dropped 269,000, another pandemic low. 
On this day in history, 1862, inventor Richard Gatling receives a U.S. patent for his rapid-fire Gatling gun. 1922, the entrance of King Tutankhamun's tomb is discovered in Egypt. 1979, the Iran hostage crisis begins as militants storm the United States Embassy in Tehran, seizing its occupants. For some of them, it would be the start of 444 days of captivity. 1980, Republican Ronald Reagan wins the White House as he defeats President Jimmy Carter. 1991, Ronald Reagan opens his presidential library in Simi Valley, California. President George Herbert Walker Bush and former Presidents Jimmy Carter, Gerald R. Ford, and Richard Nixon all attend the first ever gathering of five past and present U.S. chief executives. 1995, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated by a right-wing Israeli... Um, minutes after attending a festive peace rally, 2008, Democrat Barack Obama is, re- is elected, rather, the first black president of the United States, defeating Republican John McCain. And finally, on this day in history, 2008, California voters approved Proposition 8, a constitutional amendment outlawing same-sex marriage, overturning a state Supreme Court decision that gave gay couples the right to wed just months earlier. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Todd Nettleton with Voice of the Martyrs. The movie Sabina, Tortured for Christ, The Nazi Years, is going to be released Monday, November the 8th through the 10th. So that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and a very limited run. You can find out more about tickets and so on at sabinamovie.com. We'll talk with Ted Nettle, or rather Todd Nettleton, about that uh, coming up in the second hour of the program. We'll also talk with Kyle Mann. He's the co-author of The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness, published by Salem Books, currently available. If you're looking for a good laugh, it's a great book to uh, to pick up. Well, Democratic New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy was uh, reelected to a second term on Tuesday, narrowly defeating Republican challenger and former Assemblyman Jack Ciotarelli. Well, the win marks the first time in 44 years that a Democratic incumbent governor has uh, won re-election in the Garden State. However, the close results could spell trouble going into the 2022 midterms. Networks call the race at about 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Ninety percent of the ballots were uh, ballots rather were reported at that time, with Murphy with 1,210,000 votes and Ciotarelli 1,191,000 votes, according to the New York Times. If you ask anybody several months ago within the state, I think anybody would have predicted a high double-digit land Landslide for Murphy, but that was not the case. A Monmouth University poll released last week found that 50% of registered voters backed Murphy as opposed to 39% for Ciotarelli. And earlier polls reported that Murphy held a strong lead. Murphy also held a 52% job approval rating in the Monmouth poll with 39% disapproval. The surprisingly strong showing of Ciotarelli came in a state in which President Biden defeated former President Trump by 17 points in the 2020 election. And of course, everyone is looking for some insight into what the midterm elections might look like as a result of what happened on Tuesday. The president's massive spending spree has been stalled by Democratic allies pushing back on the far left demands. Uh, The Speaker of the House doesn't appear to have the votes to move the reconciliation bill this week, but we'll see. Top House Democrats are scrambling to get their caucus to vote for their reconciliation spending bill and the bipartisan infrastructure bill as early as this week. 
Today's Thursday, tomorrow's Friday. But a major roadblock will be a group of moderates who earlier this week demanded to see a Congressional Budget Office score for the bill. While there has been progress to address some of his concerns, there remain significant issues he's still working to address and the substance of the bill. That's a quote from spokesman for Representative Jared Golden, Nick Zeller. He's one of those uh, moderates. Uh, that is an addition, in addition to the conditions he laid out earlier this week around a CBO score. Time to review and pre-conferencing. I think you'll agree those conditions would not uh, have not been met. So you have more than just mansion and uh, cinema. You now have others who have been emboldened. Well, Golden laid out those conditions in a Tuesday letter he co-signed with representatives Josh uh, Gothheimer, Stephanie Murphy, Kurt Schrader, and Ed Case. Specifically, the members ask for 72 hours to review the final bill text before any vote, official scoring to reveal the true cost of the legislation, and an agreement with the Senate on the content of the bill before any vote. Well, in a medium post on Wednesday, Golden lauded uh, means testing for child care, among other things, as improvements in the latest version of the reconciliation bill. But he also slammed the ending of the salt cap that was uh, added to the bill this week and reiterated the three demands from the uh, Tuesday letter. I believe that the House must proceed responsibly and not take up the final text of the Build Back Better Act until three conditions are met. He said those conditions are official scoring from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, vetting with the Senate and 72 hours to review the bill. Anything less amounts to an implicit admission that party leaders do not want members to be able to fully analyze the bill before having to take a vote. Again, quoting from Golden. Well, in an on-camera comment on Thursday, Gottheimer, another of the uh, moderates, was less definitive and noted the bill text is going through yet another uh, more serious uh, uh, series of changes. A spokesperson for him added that the Joint Committee on Taxation score, which was released on Thursday, is enough for Gottheimer, and he does not necessarily need to wait for the CBO score. So we'll see what actually happens among those who are insisting on that score as opposed to moving forward without it. Well, the Wall Street Journal broke the story last week that the Biden administration was in talks to offer immigrant families that were separated during the Trump administration around $450,000 a person in compensation, with around 940 claims thus far having been filed. The story noted that the potential total payout to illegal alien families could surpass $1 billion, all paid for by American taxpayers. Now, it's not entirely accurate. What happens is if suits are brought, um, the Justice Department hears those claims. It's not a policy issue by the Biden administration. But the president said, quite frankly, that he opposes the idea and it's not going to happen. Well, the notion is uh, outrageous on its face, because rather than being deported, individuals who have willfully broken U.S. laws by crossing into the country would be handsomely rewarded for doing so. It's so outrageous, in fact, that when uh, Peter Ducey questioned the president about whether it served to further incentivize immigration into the country illegally, the president instead dismissed it as a garbage report. Uh, The president said, if you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. Ducey asked, so this is a garbage report. Biden, yeah. Ducey, okay. So Biden, $450,000 per person. Is that what you're saying? Ducey, that was separated from a family member at the border under the last administration. Biden, that's not going to happen. End quotes. Well, there's one problem. The story isn't garbage. Just ask the American Civil Liberties Union, which happens to be representing these uh, 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 
aliens in the question. Rather, in question, the president of ACLU, Anthony Romero, refuted the president's denial, which is rather brazen, uh, stating President Biden may not have been fully briefed about the actions of his own Justice Department as it carefully deliberated and considered the crimes committed against thousands of families separated from their children as an intentional government policy, which, by the way, the law requires while they're sorting out who's whom. If these are the actual parents, if these are uh, individuals who have been tra- uh, trafficked. So the law actually requires that separation, at least for a period of time, while that, that's all being sorted out. Well, the uh, response, ouch. Romero later added, if we can't achieve true restitution, we'll take our case on behalf of our clients to court. Well, what questioned about the uh, Uh, When questioned about the story, the president's Justice Department remained mum, offering only the non-denial statement that it does not comment on ongoing litigation, leaving the general public in the dark. Well, the most uh, obvious question is this. Just how privy is Biden to what his administration is doing regarding the border? No matter how much he and his administration may deny it, their clear um, policy, border policy, is open borders where no one is uh, deemed illegal. The play is to expand the Uh, The voter base, as the Democrats have sought to smuggle into their partisan one point seven five trillion dollar social spending bill, a path to citizenship for millions of those in the country illegally. Well, the Congressional Budget Office recently released its estimates of the cost of such action, concluding that the price tag would be more than five hundred billion dollars over two decades. That's largely due to the addition of millions of new citizens suddenly ballooning the cost of Social Security, of Medicare and other income redistribution programs. Well, Democrats want millions of um, some. I don't want to overgeneralize. Uh, Some want um, primarily politicians, millions uh, who have not paid federal taxes suddenly being given entitlement to benefits they never contributed to. It's uh, it's a wonder that so many are rejecting uh, that idea at the polls, at least in this uh, recent election. But again, while elections have consequences, the midterm elections have not taken place yet. And what happens then may follow the pattern historically or it may be something entirely different. Meanwhile, Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci had the latest in their uh, series of tense exchanges on Thursday when the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases appeared before the Senate Health, Education and Labor Pension Committee. Uh, Paul has been a fierce critic of Fauci, accusing him of falsely denying that the government has funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where Paul believes COVID-19 likely originated. Fauci has denied this and continued to do so in no uncertain terms. Paul, Dr. Fauci, I don't expect you today to admit that you approved the NIH funding for a gain-of-function research in Wuhan, but your repeated denials have worn thin. He told uh, Fauci as a precursor to his questioning, stating that the National Institutes of Health admitted that it funded a grant to EcoHealth Alliance with a subaward to the Wuhan lab. Paul said that as part of this work, it engaged in experiments in Wuhan that led to the creation of viruses that do not occur in nature and increased in deadliness. The facts are clear, Paul went on. The NIH did not uh, rather did fund gain of function research in Wuhan, despite your protestations. He continued. He's a Republican from Kentucky, claiming that Fauci's persistent denials are not simply a strain on your reputation, but are clear and present danger to the country and to the world. End quote. Well, Dr. Fauci has argued and did so again later in the hearing that the viruses studied at Wuhan that the NIH funded could not possibly have turned into SARS-CoV-2. 
But Paul noted that this argument was misleading because no one is alleging that. Well, what Paul did say was that the research in Wuhan could cause a pandemic even worse the next time. He also claimed that COVID-19 could have been created from a virus that the Chinese officials have not disclosed. Will you today finally take some responsibility for funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan? He asked the good doctor. Senator, with all due respect, I disagree with so many of the things that you've said. Fauci said to begin his response. He went on to say that gain of function is a very nebulous term that outside parties have worked on assigning a more precise definition. Up until recently, the National Institutes of Health website had a section that discussed gain of function research, providing a broad definition of a type of research that modifies a biological agent so that it confers new and enhanced activity to that agent, end quote. On the 20th of last month, the NIH removed this section from its website, replacing it with one that discusses enhanced potential pandemic pathogen research, which it defined as research that may be reasonably anticipated to create, transfer or use potential pandemic pathogens resulting from the enhancement of a pathogen's transmissibility and or virulence in humans. Well, the senator accused Fauci and the National Institutes of Health of defining away gain of function, saying it doesn't exist because you changed the definition on the site. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Back, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk with Todd Nettleton about Sabina, Tortured for Christ, The Nazi Years, the movie in theaters, starting next Monday through Wednesday. A very short run. You can find out more at sabinamovie.com. And Kyle Mann, co-author of The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. He'll join us in the next hour as well. Well, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, is giving employers with more than 100 employees a January 4th deadline to comply with the president's COVID-19 vaccine mandate and threatening thousands of dollars in fines for defiant businesses, according to a fact sheet released by the White House today. The OSHA rule is expected to be immediately challenged in court by Republican states and some business groups. Separate from OSHA, the Centers for Medicare and uh, Medicaid Services is issuing a rule to require healthcare workers and facilities participating in Medicare and Medicaid be fully vaccinated. The CMS rules uh, will also go into effect January 4th and will cover more than 17 million workers at approximately 76,000 healthcare facilities nationwide. Unlike the OSHA rule, the CMS rule affecting healthcare workers doesn't allow for a testing alternative to vaccination. The CMS rule does allow for medical and religious exemptions. The White House rather also said Thursday that it would push back its federal contractor vaccine mandate deadline from December 8th to January 4th. A coalition of Republican attorneys general have um, already filed suit against the federal contractor mandate. Employers with uh, more than 100 employees have to ensure that all their workers are either fully vaccinated or subject to weekly testing and mask wearing. And by the way, the employer has to underwrite the cost of the weekly testing. Fully vaccinated means that the employee has received two doses of Moderna or Pfizer BioNTech shots or one dose of Johnson & Johnson shot. Uh, The president announced the policy in September, arguing it was a vital step to make sure more of the country received the COVID-19 vaccine with no allowance for those who have already 
uh, had the uh, virus and have antibodies. The president said, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us. The president said, while America is in much better shape than it, it was seven months ago when I took office, we are in a tough stretch and it could last for a while, end quote. Well, according to senior administration officials, OSHA will assist employers to develop their vaccine and testing standards, fines for willingly uh, failing to comply with the mandate could reach as much as $14,000 per violation, with the potential for multiple citations per business. Well, the rule will also preempt any inconsistent state or local laws, including laws that ban or limit an employer's authority to require vaccination, masks or testing, the White House said. So the showdown has begun. The rule is set to impact roughly 84 million employees. 70 percent of all U.S. adults are fully vaccinated, according to the administration. But the mandate has faced pushback from companies and some lawmakers who warn that the new rule could serve to further hinder the nation's struggling supply chain just as the busy holiday season goes into effect. Uh, With the holiday season rapidly approaching, consumers are now facing the likelihood of empty shelves in stores and delayed shipping for online purchases. That's a quote from uh, Senator Cynthia Loomis, a Republican from Wyoming, in a letter to the president. Removing barriers that allow the private sector to operate efficiently is the best path forward to re-bolster our supply chains. Again, the showdown has officially begun. Well, federal agents arrested the primary subsource uh, who contributed to the unverified anti-Trump dossier today as part of special counsel John Durham's investigation that is still going on into the origins of the probe into whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia to influence the 2016 presidential election. Danchenko's arrest is linked to a federal grand jury indictment in the U.S. District Court For the Eastern District of Virginia, Durham is charging Danchenko, a Russian citizen residing in Virginia, with five counts of making false statements to the FBI. The charges stemmed from statements that he made relating to the sources he used and providing information to an investigative firm in the United Kingdom. Danchenko is uh, scheduled to make his first court appearance before U.S. Magistrate Judge Teresa Buckman. Thursday afternoon. Actually, it's Buchanan. Well, Danchenko is believed to be the subsource for former British intelligence officer Christopher Steele, who compiled the dossier that served as the basis for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA warrants against Trump campaign aide Carter Page. The dossier was funded by the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign through law firm Perkins Coy. According to the indictment in March, May, June, October and November of 2017, Danchenko made false statements regarding the sources of certain information that he provided to a UK investigative firm that was then included in the the reports prepared by the UK investigative firm and subsequently passed to the FBI. In June of that year, false statements, uh, a statement count alleging that Denchenko denied that he had spoken with a particular individual about material information contained in one of the company reports when he knew that it was untrue. In March of 2017, May of the same year, October and November of 2017, uh, the counts involved statements made by Denchenko on those dates to FBI agents regarding information he purportedly had received from an anonymous caller who he believed to be a particular individual, when in truth and in fact he knew that it was untrue. 
Uh, the information purportedly conveyed by the anonymous caller included the allegation that there were communications ongoing between the Trump campaign and Russian officials and that the caller had indicated that the Kremlin might be of help in getting Trump elected. That was all false. Well, the special counsel's investigation is ongoing and going and going. Danchenko cooperated with the FBI during the 2017 interviews on the condition the FBI keep his identity secret so he could protect himself. That apparently is no longer the case. Well, San Francisco will soon require children as young as five to show proof of COVID-19 vaccinations to enter certain indoor public spaces like restaurants, entertainment venues and sports events. Public health officials said this week. Now, they have trouble keeping their lunch money. This might be a bridge too far. The local mandate already requires children and adults over the ages of 12 to age of 12, rather, to show proof that they were vaccinated before entering those places. Now, city health officials are planning to extend the health order to children ages 5 to 11, the group newly eligible for the shot. San Francisco health officer Susan Phillips said the requirement won't kick in for at least two months. Uh, we definitely want to wait and make sure children have an opportunity to get vaccinated if they want it or not, so that um, uh, that will happen no sooner than about eight weeks after the vaccine is available for kids. She said at a town hall meeting on Tuesday about youth vaccinations, vaccinations of the younger age group began Wednesday in California, the same day West Coast uh, scientific experts announced they greenlighted the use of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine for children at ages 5 to 11. And a day after the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended the kid sized dose. The pediatric vaccine is a third of the adult dose and, like the adult formation, is given in two doses 21 days apart. Officials from the San Francisco Department of Public Health on Wednesday confirmed the plan saying the city's current vaccination and masking requirements will be reexamined once the younger children have adequate time to be vaccinated. So they're going to wait till after they're vaccinated to reexamine the policy. As with children 12 to 17 who may not have personal identification, we will follow the same approach with the younger kids, such that they uh, would not be penalized for not having an ID, the spokesperson from the department wrote in an email. So in an extension of extreme generosity, apparently kids five and uh, 11 will be off the hook for having identification. Well, we've got news and traffic coming up here in just a moment. And in the second hour, we're going to talk about the movie Sabina tortured for Christ, the Nazi years. I had the opportunity to uh, watch a preview of the movie. It is absolutely worth seeing. I found it very moving. It was challenging, inspiring, and a lot of things. Uh, It's going to be in theaters Monday through Wednesday of next week. And that's it. You can find out more at SabinaMovie.com, and we'll talk with Todd Nettleton about that. He's with Voice of the Martyrs, who produced the film. And Kyle Mann will join me. He's a co-author of The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, we all know that turmoil and hardship can cultivate outstanding character. It can also go the other way. Well, releasing in theaters November the 8th through the 10th, Fathom Events' latest special, Sabina, Tortured for Christ, The Nazi Years, 
tells a very powerful and true story of Sabina Wormbrand and her husband, Richard. Sabina and Richard are the co-founders of the nonprofit The Voice of the Martyrs, an interdenominational uh, missions organization that serves persecuted Christians around the world. It's set during World War II. It spans the years between 1938 to 1944, and it takes viewers on a journey through Romania to discover why Sabina, a Jewish Christian, would risk her life to offer a kind hand to German soldiers and so many others. It is a fascinating story. As I mentioned yesterday, I finished watching it last night. It was moving, challenging, inspiring, convicting, all the things you want uh, this kind of uh, entertainment experience to be, if you can refer to it as such. Uh, And I'm so delighted to have uh, with us today... Ted, uh, rather, Todd Nettleton, who is the Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for the Voice of the Martyrs USA and host of the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. He serves as the voice for persecuted Christians, inspiring us here in the U.S. with the faithfulness of Christ followers in 70 plus nations where they face persecution. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, I have to tell you, I finished watching the movie last night. I sort of uh, cut it up during the day yesterday, and it was incredible. It's beautifully done. It tells the story incredibly well. And I have to admit, I was challenged to think about my own walk with with Christ and whether or not I fully embrace and understand the meaning of the gospel and am expressing the love of Christ in the way that we see the warm brands and particularly Sabina. So first of all, congratulations on a work beautifully done. Well, thank you very much. It is very well done. I I had the director, John Gers, on Voice of the Martyrs Radio last weekend, and he said, you know, we we don't want to just make a sermon. We want to make a film. We want to make something that people want to come and watch, and I think he has achieved that goal. Oh, absolutely. I learned something of the history of Romania. I'm more familiar with contemporary history, but going back to where things began to change there, uh, just the history of this couple and what they were like before coming to Christ. It was entertaining. It's uh, beautiful in in terms of just the cinematic experience, but it really moves your heart to learn about this this couple. Now, the Wormbrands, as I mentioned, they founded Voice of the Martyrs back in 1967, but I think the message their life story tells is still relevant today as we consider our own call to follow Christ, but also the persecuted around the world who live and uh, worship Christ under very similar difficult circumstances. You are so correct. And I think, uh, you know, you you say we're going to tell you a story that happened during World War II, and it's like, well, wait, that was a long time ago. But when you say we're going to tell you a story of forgiveness, Mm. uh, suddenly that that is very contemporary because all of us have been wronged. All of us have been hurt. All of us have to grapple with that idea of, okay, I want to forgive this person. How do I do that? What does that look like? And Sabina is such an amazing example of forgiveness that it really inspires it. And I, one of the things I think as, as people leave the theater next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think there are going to be some stories that come back of, of how forgiveness worked into their lives and how the Lord really challenged them when they saw the film to say, okay, Sabina forgave the people who killed her whole family. Who, who do you need to forgive? And, and can you do that in light of, of what you've seen? Yeah. And it's not just the feeling, okay, I'm going to release the bitterness and anger I might possess. She loved in tangible, practical ways. She extended that forgiveness uh, in loving her enemies in ways that I think really challenge us to consider the radical nature 
of the gospel and what God is calling us to. At least that's how it was for me as I observed her life and what the two of them suffered and what Christ is is calling us to. I, I was really challenged, and I think viewers will find that this is much more than just an experience learning the history of a couple that's have a major impact on Christianity in the 20th century. Yeah, her ability to put feet to forgiveness, and I, I love the way you describe it. It's, you know, we, we think of forgiveness as kind of a mental ascent, a decision that I make in my mind. Sabina managed to live it out. She cooked dinner for the people who killed her family. That That's beyond just a mental decision. That is actually putting it to work in your heart and letting it outflow into the way you treat someone. That's where the challenge really, uh, I think really, and I was challenged the same way. It's like, wait a minute, yeah, I've forgiven people, but then sometimes it's like, would you cook dinner for them? Would you have them over to your house? What, you know, how much does your forgiveness affect the way you live and the way you treat them? Yeah, the tagline for the film is the heart of the gospel is forgiveness. And to see that lived out in such a dramatic way uh, challenges us all. Now, as you mentioned, the um, the film Sabina, Tortured for Christ, The Nazi Years, it's a prequel to uh, Tortured for Christ, is going to be in theaters November 8th, 9th and 10th, which is Monday through Wednesday of next week. I want to make sure our listeners know how they can find where it's going to be shown and where they can purchase their tickets. SabinaMovie.com, S-A-B-I-N-A, Movie.com. There's a button there that says get tickets. You put it in your zip code. It will pull up all of the theaters close to you. There's more than 800 theaters around the country that are going to show the film. So there is one close to you uh, pretty much wherever you are in the United States because there's so many. But SabinaMovie.com. You know, one of the things I thought made the uh, the movie so relevant to the 21st century and what we're facing as followers of Christ today is where this couple came from. I didn't really know. They were atheists. They were hedonists. They had no interest at all in spiritual things. And the way events um, took uh, the the imagination of Richard Wormbrand and ultimately led him to become a follower of Christ and her reluctance to watch that process and how it led them to really understand what the scriptures teach and to follow Christ precisely in the way that he calls us to. I thought that was really a relevant part of the story and and made it seem like, yeah, I can relate to these people in ways I hadn't expected. You know, that's exactly right. And the other thing that that means is you can take anybody with you to go see this film, even an unbeliever, you can take with you to go see this film because every person can find themselves somewhere along the way in the story. You know, whether it's the Richard and Sabina who had given up on religion and decided, you know what, I'm just going to pursue pleasure. People can find themselves there. Maybe it's the new believer who's making the decision about how much do I want to sacrifice in order to follow Christ. They're they're in that story too. And then you have Richard and Sabina, really a high-level biblical disciples living out what it means to follow Christ. So it, it is a great film. And, and like you say, it's very approachable. It mm-hmm. is not, you know, hey, look at these superhero Christians and you could never be like them. It's like, no, look where they started. Look where they are now. God can do that same work in your heart as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how did Sabina impact um, the founding of Voice of the Martyrs? We often think of, of Richard Wormbrand, but maybe underestimate the role she played in the founding and the development of this movement that drew attention uh, from the uh, for the Christian community to the persecuted church. 
Well, Richard and Sabina were a matched set. Uh, I mm-hmm. often tell people there there is no Richard Wormbrand without Sabina Wormbrand, and there is no Sabina Wormbrand without Richard Wormbrand. They very much were a matched set, and uh, Sabina provided so much strength and encouragement and even challenge for Richard. Uh, one of the great scenes from their lives is at what the communists called the Congress of the Cults, and they gathered all the religious leaders together, and, and basically the idea was, Let's convince everyone that communism and religion can work together. And, and so they had all these speakers, and uh, the honorary chairman of the, of the convention was Joseph Stalin. And Richard and Sabina are sitting there, and Sabina says, Richard, stand up and wipe this shame from the face of Christ. Uh, and Richard looked at her and said, if I do that, you will no longer have a husband. And Sabina shot right back to him and said, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. (laughs) So she put some steel into his spine. Richard did stand up, and he eventually would go to prison for 14 years. But probably without her giving him that approval and even giving him that challenge, maybe he doesn't stand up that day. So you can see that the power and the force of Sabina's personality that came through even from the early years, and then certainly in the founding of the Voice of the Martyrs, she was there every step of the way. Yeah. Well, I just love this project and want to highly encourage our listeners to take advantage of the opportunity to see it in theaters Monday through Wednesday of next week, November 8th, 9th, and 10th. And you can find out where it's going to be playing and how to purchase your tickets at sabinamovie.com. I'll have a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, so if you're in your car and you can't write that down right Right now, uh, you'll have access to it. Sabina is spelled, by the way, S-A-B-I-N-A, and it's sabinamovie.com. This is, from my perspective, a must-see film. It will challenge you in your walk of faith and encourage you uh, to do what Christ is calling all of us to do, and that is to practice radical forgiveness, because it is the heart of the gospel. Todd Nettleton, thank you so much for talking with us today. It has been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. God bless. Again, Sabina, the movie, is uh, an event you don't want to miss. All right. Uh, And that website, once again, is sabinamovie.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with some friends from the Babylon Bee. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as promised, we're going to talk about the Babylon Bee's latest book, The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. Well, the staff of the world's most popular satire site reveals how to choose your, well, your pronouns, blame everyone else for your problems, and show the world how righteous you are with virtue-signaling profile pictures and stunning and brave hashtags. This is everything you will need, ladies and gentlemen, to be Woke. Well, the book is dedicated to Joseph Stalin, a woke hero and champion of the oppressed proletariat. And joining us to talk about all of this is my um, is my guest, who happens to be, you know, one of the uh, insiders of the uh, of the Babylon Bee, Kyle Mann. He is the editor in chief of the Babylon Bee, a satirical conservative and Christian news site. And yes, you can be both. Together with Joel Berry, the managing editor, he helps run the world's greatest satire site, founded in 2016. It's a trusted voice in humor for a wide range of modern Christians. Uh, Man oversees the and approves all content posted to the site and writes a good bit 
himself. Now, I should tell you, I get the uh, Babylon Bee's emails uh, throughout the day, and it's always nice to kind of break things up to put a smile on one's face. Anyway, the book, The Babylon Bee's Guide to Wokeness, How to Take Your Wokeness to the Next Level by Canceling Friends, Breaking Windows, and Burning It All to the Ground. Sounds like a great read. Hey, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> wow. Well, <laughs> this is quite a book. Um, <laughs> how has it been received thus far? And I, I can imagine how some on the on the woke scale would receive it. But generally speaking, for those to whom it was written, how are you guys being uh, received? Well, we've been we've been absolutely blown away uh, so far by the reception. It's just been it's been tremendous to see this thing get to the hands of uh, of our audience and fans. You know, people who are concerned about wokeness, people who just want to laugh. Um, uh, you know, I brought home my copies of the book and my, my children immediately picked it up. And so now I have to explain certain concepts to them, like pronouns and, um, yeah. <laughs> and microaggressions and stuff. And, uh, so those talks got bumped up a little earlier than I was planning on having them, but yeah, we've been, we've just been so excited and, and so blessed to see how, um, to see how well this thing has been uh, received so far. Yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me at all. One of the favorite things I do during the course of my workday is read uh, what the Babylon Bee is uh, saying about what's going on in the world, and it always gives me an opportunity to stop and laugh and to kind of affirm, yeah, my perspective on this uh, it actually makes more sense than the thing that we're being told to embrace. Now, let me ask you how you provide a sense of hope in the midst of what is a satirical work um, and I think that's that's an important element of um, the Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. It does provide a sense of hope. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing that satire and comedy can do is they can help you to laugh at the wrong things so that you can kind of point out um, maybe what the right things are that we should be focused on and thinking about and things that are that are, you know, excellent and praiseworthy and all that. So, um, you know, as we as we go through the book and we point out things like wokeness in the church or how miserable wokeness can make you when you start to be jealous of everybody else and put everything in these oppressor oppressed um in this oppressor oppressed paradigm we can point people to something that is actually going to give them hope and this idea that um we actually have a lot in this country and things are not as bad as people on the left uh, want us to believe yeah not so so bleak now on a more serious note let's talk about why wokeness is a problem. I imagine people are familiar with the word, the term, but some of us might not fully embrace or understand what it is. And where do you see the culture going in the midst of this sort of uh, censorship, if you will, and uh, guided uh, effort to guide one's thinking and vocabulary? Yeah, well, I don't think anybody really understands wokeness because it is one of those things that's a constant moving target and it, the, the term has really changed and evolved over the years to where you hear people talk people who are talking about wokeness today might not be talking about the same thing that people a few decades ago were talking about um, when they mentioned wokeness so for us what we're really focusing on in the babylon beat guide to wokeness is this kind of neo-marxist uh, worldview that has become so popular um where everything is divided into two classes of people, the people who oppress and the people who are oppressed. You're either a victim or you are complicit with the oppressors of those victims. And that that really is such a broad topic because 
that that touches all areas of life. And that's why we had so much material to joke about with the book, because whether you're talking about race or gender or the church or the TV shows you watch or the kind of food you eat or the kind of pillow you sleep on, the politics and wokeness really touches everything nowadays. Um, and that is, you know, you're asking where we see the culture going in the midst of this. And we kind of, we kind of, we're kind of discouraged, of course, by the way that it's going uh, with the woke stuff. But we're also encouraged by the backlash. A lot of people are waking up to how ridiculous it is. And, you know, evidenced by all the people that are picking up this book and reading it and having a laugh about it. I mean, I think there is going to be some kind of backlash as we go, especially among the younger generation, um, pushing back against this this kind of thinking. So, yeah, there, there, it's a mixed bag, but I do think there is something to be encouraged by for sure. Now, in this day and age when comedy in general is being frowned upon by the woke, what kind of criticism have you uh, received by writing this satirical book? I know that you guys have been in the news before the book came out for some of the things that you have written. Um, How is the book being received by critics? Yeah, um, you know, we we obviously get a lot of criticism from the left for anything we do. Um, I, I, I did an interview with The Atlantic before the book came out and they were kind of reviewing the book along with an interview with me. And, you know, they were critical of the book because they see everything in, in terms of, you know, punching up and punching down in comedy. So to them, there are like protected classes that you're not supposed to make fun of. Um, you know, and, and that's a wide range of, of people, but basically it's, you know, if you make fun of their agenda, if you make fun of the left's politics to them, you really are attacking um, something sacred, something that's sacred to them, something that to them is going to bring about salvation, liberation and justice for marginalized and oppressed peoples. And of course, we disagree with that. And we don't think that their politics are going to bring about any kind of um, salvation or prosperity for oppressed peoples. But even just by us mocking the mocking their method, mocking their politics and their approach, um, to making the world a better place. You know, they see that as part and parcel with making fun of marginalized or oppressed people. So there is this kind of this weird paradigm where people kind of in the bubble of the left don't, they, they don't see our material as funny or comedic because they see it as like evil, like it's mocking their very path to salvation if they do believe that politics is, is a means of salvation in some way under the woke uh, worldview. But other than that, you know, we've been very fortunate, I think, I think for the most part, people people generally just get comedy and they don't they don't uh, freak out over a joke, even if, when it's one they disagree with, by and large. Yeah, that's where we used to be some time ago. But today it seems comedy in general, whether it's satirical or otherwise, is uh, certainly being challenged as appropriate in virtually every quarter. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think that is more of a smaller, um, a small but loud Mm-hmm. section of the internet and culture that gets offended. I, I do think in my personal experience, when I've talked to people who I disagree with that read the Babylon Bee or have picked up the Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness, they can laugh at it, even though they disagree with it. I, I think that that is a small but vocal minority that just really controls the conversation. And that is very concerning from a censorship and, uh, and cancel culture perspective. Now, what do you say to those who think you're simply making fun of the left? Is that an unfair characterization? Um, this book is more focused on the left. We always try to get, anytime we make fun of anybody, we try to get jabs in the other direction as well, because we think that makes good comedy. Um, 
this particular book is more targeted at the left. Our last book, How to Be a Perfect Christian, was targeted more at the religious right. Um, as far as the mix of articles that we put up on the website, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we'll make fun. We do make fun of the left a little bit more than the right because fewer satirical sites and comedians are doing it. Mm-hmm. But we we do think it's important to make fun of people on the right and our own as well, just as much as we make fun of the other side. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, why do you think conservative Christians in particular uh, might pick up this book and what can they expect to gain from it? Yeah, I mean, I, this this book is great for conservative Christians because um, it does point out a lot of things in a dry satirical way that, that the woke movement is about that you might not know mm-hmm. that they're actually pushing into those areas. Uh, <laughs> we, we've had a few people come back and and say, well, I like the book, but it's not satirical enough. Like you are, you are teaching, you are teaching me something through the pages. <laughs> and, and it is true that we kind of did write it like a dry uh, how-to manual or instruction manual. And a lot of the style of satire is more dry where we are. Um, we are trying to inform and instruct just as much as we are trying to uh, make people laugh. So it, it works on that level. We've gotten word from a couple of Christian colleges that they're that they were actually using this book in some of their classes to teach about wokeness, which we think is hilarious and awesome. Um, (laughs) So we think from a conservative Christian perspective, there's a great amount of material here. Also just for Christians. I mean, we have a whole chapter in there on, I think we call it uh, how to make sure your church is as woke as Jesus. So that's our uh, satirical take on how wokeness has started to infect certain churches. Yeah, yeah. Now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll return to continue our conversation. When we come back, I'd like you to give us an example of uh, something in the book that you think our listeners might especially enjoy. So we'll get to that in just a few moments. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. How to take your wokeness to the next level by canceling friends, breaking windows, and burning it all to the ground. Oh, sounds like a lot of fun. The book is published by Salem Books, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking this afternoon with uh, Kyle Mann. He is the co author of The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. It's published by Salem Books and is a satirical work that is also very informative about where we happen to be at this point in our culture. Now, according to the Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness, how can a reader take his, her, your, hers, hers, wokeness to the next level? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure I left yeah, some out, but <laughs> yeah, you left out a few hundred <laughs> uh, pronouns. Yeah. That are, <laughs> that are important. Well, we kind of wrote the book in a, uh, in a kind of a logical progression format. So we start out just kind of giving a basic definition of wokeness and some, and we lay out some concepts that are coming up in the book. Um, and then we start with just uh, our chapter on intersectionality and identity. So this is kind of a key part of um, the progressive woke movement on the left is you're, you're trying to um, get as many, intersections of oppression as you can in your identity. And so we kind of mock that to the extreme in this, in this chapter, but we're talking about um, how you can pick, you know, uh, how you can pick different levels of intersectionality and oppression along all these different axes. And we help you select one that will make you um, as much of a victim as possible so that you can constantly remind yourself that your problems are not your fault. You're a victim in all of this. 
and um, there's nothing you can do to better yourself or overcome challenges in your life. And so that, that's kind of the framework. And from there, we just cover all the different topics of wokeness. Uh, and, you know, and of course, it's not everything. We could have written many, many more pages on all the different areas that wokeness likes to infect. But uh, we, we had some fun doing all the different ones in here. Yeah, it's a pretty good sampling, I, I would say. You cover a lot of territory <laughs> yeah. uh, in these pages. Uh, is Can you give us an example of one that you think might resonate? Well, they all do, but that might resonate with our listeners today? <laughs> yeah, I, well, my favorite chapter to write was the um, How to Fight Fascism with Violence. <laughs> and I'm a fan of Looney Tunes-style humor. You know, anytime somebody gets an anvil dropped on their head or uh, falls into a pit or something. That's that's my favorite kind of stuff. So uh, making fun of Antifa, which is almost a self-parodying movement within the woke side, woke fringes at the left, um, was just so much fun for us. You know, you have this movement that says that they fascism. It's right in the name. We're out there going around punching Nazis. But the tactics they use are almost indistinguishable from the tactics of actual Nazis uh, back in the 1930s and 40s. So there was a lot of fun p- uh, pointing out that kind of hypocrisy. And that, that's one thing that satire is great at doing is pointing out hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. So we do that by using stick figures, showing you um, Antifa's uh, uh, special fight moves and, and how you can um, how you can fight back against those or how you can use those self-defense moves, all that kind of stuff. So it's a really fun, uh, it's a really fun visual book. You know, it's one of those things you can let, throw on the coffee table, and uh, someone will definitely pick it, pick it up, and flip to one of those pages and uh, and have a laugh at one of those illustrations. Oh, absolutely! You can sit down and read through it. You can just pick a chapter and go from one to the other. One of my favorite ones is how to be offended by everything. Discover how microaggressions and things you disagree with are literal violence. Uh, again, just a reflection of. Uh, of our culture. Now, how did the Babylon Bee get started? It's such a, uh, for me, it's such an essential part of the day to just stop and take a, a look at what's going on from a humorous angle and a satirical angle. How did you all get started? So we were founded by a guy named Adam Ford uh, back in Mar- on March 1st, 2016. He had been running a Christian reformed web on the internet for some time. And he read an article from The Onion which is similar to us, but from Mm -hmm. a secular perspective. He read an article from The Onion that was making some political point, and it was a point he entirely 100% disagreed with. You know, it was a political point that he hated, but he loved the joke. And I don't remember the exact headline that he had read at that time, but he read that and he was like, I wish there was something like that coming from a perspective that I agree with, because it's really funny. (laughs) So it kind of shows the power of comedy to... Um, to make you hear someone else's perspective that you might otherwise ignore. Once you're laughing, your guard is down, you know? So it's such a powerful tool um, from that level. So he ended up launching it, and basically we didn't have any advertising funds or marketing. We bought a web domain for $50 and started the website. Um, And it was just kind of an overnight sensation. There was a lot of Christians that were feeling a lot of things and didn't know how to express it. So to have a website that was kind of um, a lightning rod for those issues and topics, I think was important. It gave a lot of Christians a sense of, um, you know, identifying with the Babylon Bee and understanding the perspective that we were coming from. We were writing comedy 
that didn't hate Christians and didn't mm-hmm. hate conservatives. And that seemed pretty rare at the time. So, uh, so it kind of became this overnight sensation. Now, I'm a regular reader of the Babylon Bee, but how much of the book's content is new that hasn't appeared in on the website? Um, almost all of it. Uh, we, we wrote almost all new content for the book. There are a few of the um, lists I lists in there, like we have a list of um, how to be uh, how to tell if you are a secret racist. And uh, we took that and we turned it into it. But it is still kind of new content in the book because we did new graphics for it. We added new jokes to the list, that kind of stuff. So there are a couple of features in there that we repurposed from the website. But 95 percent of it is all new stuff that we uh, we wrote and illustrated ourselves. What do you say to progressive Christians who may not uh, favorably uh, be disposed toward the book? Well, I would hope that most of them could still laugh um, at something like that. Uh, it's it's not really intended to be mean. It's not intended to be this. Um, it's not intended to be this like absolute evisceration of them as people. It's more trying to make fun of um, the worldviews and especially the fringes. Satire is always satire is always exaggerating um, uh, things for comic effect. So it's not like trying to say that all of these positions that we make fun of in the book are things that everybody on the left believes entirely. Mm-hmm. It's more like here's a, here's a crazy funhouse mirror style reflection of you. And, you know, if it hurts a little bit, then we would hope that maybe um, someone on the left would uh, reexamine their worldview a little bit. If, uh, if satire hurts, that might mean that you have some hypocrisy or some flaw that you need to, uh, you need to examine in your worldview. Yeah. And just to, again, your first book was uh, focusing on the church. This one focuses a bit on the left. And generally speaking, you guys cover a lot of territory. So there's enough to go around for, for just about uh, anybody. How important do you think comedy and satire are to our political environment, especially now uh, when people are so easily offended and there seems to be so much anger? Yeah, I mean, political satire and comedy is so important. Um we liken it kind of to the old fable of the boy who pointed out that the emperor had no clothes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something that everybody is noticing, but nobody is saying. And that's kind of the role of the comedian. That's the role of the comic, that's the role of the satirist. As you sit there and you kind of dryly and childishly and innocently point out things and go places that nobody else is willing to point out or go. Um, so that, so I think it's really important. I mean, are are jokes that kind of make fun of both sides of the political aisle are are jokes that make fun of the entire political system. Mm -hmm. Those are so important because they, they take a lot of the power out of those things. It's so easy for us as Christians to get super stressed out about the 24 seven news cycle. We're always being told by um, news outlets on the right and the left that, whatever this political fight that we're in is today is, you know, the end of democracy or the end of the world. And it's so easy to get so stressed out about those things that we lose sight of what's really important. So I love those jokes that we can kind of just go drop a nuclear bomb on the whole thing and say, guys, this isn't that important. Let's just have a laugh about it. And let's all, let's all calm down. I mean, I think God gave us humor and God gave us comedy for those reasons. It, it really helps remind us of what's more eternal and more important than just the temporary battle of today. Yeah, certainly puts things into perspective. Well, once again, it's the Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness, how to take your wokeness to the next level by canceling friends, breaking windows, and burning it all to the ground.
<laughs> well, t- uh, Kyle, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. And I would encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. It will put a smile on your face and, and uh, perhaps relieve a little bit of the uh, the pressure. It's published by Salem Books, which is an imprint of Regnery Publishing and available where books are sold. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Just wanted to remind you, in theaters right now is the uh, wonderful book on C- or book the wonderful movie on C.S. Lewis. It's going to be in theaters through the 18th, but not every day between now and then. You can find out more at C.S. Lewis the movie. Uh, dot com cs lewis i shouldn't have said the cs lewis com. you can get your tickets there find out where it's uh, playing what times what theaters and so on but that began yesterday and will run through the 18th although not every day and as i mentioned the first ever 3d animated creationist documentary is now available from answers in genesis you can go to their website and find out uh, more about their latest uh, which is on the book of genesis um very well done. It's a 3D animated creationist documentary, stunning visual effects, epic orchestration, research um, to explore Genesis with PhDs and scholars and experts on the subject. So it's really quite fascinating. 110 minutes um, each set includes 50 minutes of bonus computer generated content on a separate DVD. So when you make that purchase, Genesis Paradise Lost. You get both DVDs. Check that out in answer uh, at Answers in Genesis. And as we heard earlier today, Sabina, Tortured for Christ, the Nazi years. And we've got all the important details uh, for that. SabinaMovie.com uh, or the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you're interested in taking advantage of the three days it'll be available in our area. That's Monday through Wednesday of next week. Well, Americans have lost faith in truth. Thomas Gallatin makes the point that since our inception in 1996, the motto has been, and this is the Patriot Post, um, uh, Latin for the last phrase of Jesus' declaration in John 8:32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Unfortunately, the postmodern idea that truth is relative has really taken hold right here in America. There was a recent survey from George Barna. It found that the majority of American adults at 54 percent now believe that truth is subjective and that there are no moral absolutes. Now, if you consider what that means, the implications of that, it uh, can be rather frightening. We're just at a place in our country's history now where that's the default view, Barna noted in their research. Most people would say all truth is subjective and there's no kind of objective truth based on an external standard which is something of a contradiction if you're saying there is no, that's an absolute in and of itself. Um, they would say they're um, the standard that determines what truth is, which means truth isn't anything in particular. Such assertions are, of course, well, false, and they explain much of our nation's troubles. Well, American culture is rapidly embracing the view that personal self-interests trump commitment to truth, that ethereal thing that changes depending on who's trying to address it. The result of this kind of thinking is significantly negative as it erodes societal trust. Now, Barna explains, if I decided it's not my best in my best interest to lie to you, I'll do it. If it's in my best interest, interpersonal deception will become more common and we'll have lower levels of trust toward other people, making it harder to have relationships because we'll no longer trust 
what other people tell us is real, because all truth, they would argue, is relative. In short, people stop believing that anyone is telling the truth or that anyone can be trusted. It tears apart society by making us, in essence, a bunch of savages who look out for ourselves without turning to any higher principles to solve disagreements, point us to the right direction, or give us any sense of moral purpose. Barna observed, when you take absolute moral truth out of the equation, we're no different from the caveman. Furthermore, this erosion, uh, this erosion in truth is producing the cultural attacks against America's founding principles of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. The foundation for those ideals is rooted in the belief of absolute truth, that morality is not some mere creation of mankind or the individual, but a law of the universe inscribed by the hand of God, the creator. To embrace the other view is, well, rather dangerous. When the concept that God is the ultimate author and source of all truth and morality is no longer accepted and believed, then a massive moral vacuum is created and godless power-hungry individuals seek to take advantage. Like the serpent in the Garden of Eden falsely promising Adam and Eve greater autonomy and empowerment if they reject God's law and truth, today's uh, godless promises uh, promise a more just and happy society if people would just hand over more power to these benevolent elites, sometimes in government, sometimes in business, but elites nonetheless. Well, government becomes God, and therefore, whatever the government says is so. Somehow, it's absolutely so, despite the fact that absolute truth has been rejected. Whatever laws the government makes become the moral code, which, of course, is subject to change whenever the government wishes to do so or whenever the government changes. Well, the great irony in all of this is that individual freedom and individual moral responsibility is lost and that's the truth, if you believe it exists. That's where we find ourselves, in an environment in which the majority of people in our country, in the West in general, believe there is no absolute truth. That, uh, that means that things that we would absolutely agree to, like murder is wrong, is no longer an absolute wrong. Um, and some things that we would embrace as right can no longer be considered absolutely right. There will always be circumstances under which the wrong thing can be considered the right thing and vice versa. And God help us moving forward if more and more embrace that ideology, which seems to be the case. Well, all of that to say, as men and women of faith, we can spend time on our knees asking God to help us to discern truth, uh, to embrace it, to speak it, to live by it, and to be guided by it in God's word. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering a portion of today's, well, actually, you engineered the whole of today's program. Uh, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow, of course, being Friday, we're going to take a look at the headlines, but we'll also look at the lighter side of the news and we'll share this week's Christian Outlook. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.